Well, allow me to begin with some very familiar lyrics from an old hymn. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found. Was blind, but now I see. These words were penned and published by John Newton in 1779, and they continue to capture the heart and souls of many around the world. Amazing Grace is probably the most beloved hymn of the past two centuries, and it's estimated that it gets sung some 10 million times every single year, and it's also been on over 11,000 albums. In our house, it's a special song, and it's usually one of the, the requested songs for our kids at bedtime. And we have a chance to sing it when we put the kids down. Being played with so much frequency, one might expect that the lyrics could get old or for people to lose some interest. But for the true believer, we understand that this hymn is filled with timeless and treasured truths about the gospel. Amen? It really is. We understand that it's by grace that we have been saved. We understand that we could never earn our salvation. We did nothing, nor could we ever do anything that could merit our righteousness or merit Christ's love for us. Believers understand that at one point in our lives, we were all lost without hope until we were born again. And the hope that we have in Christ as a result, as the writer of Hebrews shares, serves as an anchor of the soul. It serves as, as the truth that grounds us. It is the very anchor of hope for the soul. We understand that at one point before Christ and the gospel invaded our lives, that we were blind and could not see. We were blind to who Jesus Christ is. We were blind to the truths that help us to see our need for salvation so that we could be set free from the penalty and the bondage of our sin. Spiritual blindness has been something that Jesus has featured regularly for us in our study in the Gospel of Mark. And today we reach a milestone as we come to the end of Mark chapter 10 as Jesus performs His final miracle in Mark's Gospel account. What does the miracle involve? It involves Jesus healing a blind man named Bartimaeus. You find this interesting. Of all the people that Jesus healed, He's the only one that we're given His name in the Scripture. All the other people in the Synoptic Gospels remain nameless with the exception of Bartimaeus. Jesus, as we've learned, is moving steadily in the direction of Jerusalem and He's surrounded by people who do not understand who He is. The scribes and the Pharisees are blind to who He is. And though He's tried on numerous occasions to testify of His deity, to testify that He is of the Messiah, they continue to be blind. The crowds are blind to who He is. And even though He's performed countless miracles and demonstrated His deity and the authority of His teaching, they still remain blind. In some ways, the disciples remain blind too. Even though Peter made a clear confession 
of who Christ is in Mark 8.30, the disciples still remain blind as to why Jesus came. The disciples, like many in the crowds, will not fully recognize Jesus and, and will not understand why He came until after His death on the cross and He's risen on the third day. You may recall in our previous study, back in Mark 8 and verses 22 through 26, Jesus had healed a blind man there. And he did it in stages, if you recall. And he was very purposed. He could have done it just all at one time, but he did it in stages because it reflected something that was taking place. It reflected the progress of the disciples. They did not see Christ clearly. But in time, right, as they progressed, they would come to understand everything clearly, the purpose for which He came perfectly. And now as Jesus is about to enter Jerusalem, and with so many people spiritually blind to who He is and why He has come, Mark places this amazing final miracle at the threshold. And in a twist of irony, it will be a blind man who will have spiritual eyes to see who Jesus is and who will begin following Him towards the cross. Not trying to prevent Him from going to the cross, not battling about who gets the preferred seat next to Christ. He will simply become a follower. And this concludes an important section in Mark on discipleship that started back in Mark 8. This is the story of Bartimaeus and how the Savior purposely performed this miracle to point us to faith and discipleship. In this count, we're going to see that faith in Christ overcomes spiritual blindness and puts us on the path of discipleship. Mark 10, verses 46 through 52, says this in the New American Standard. Then they came to Jericho, and as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples, and a large crowd, a blind beggar named Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the road. And when he had heard that it was Jesus the Nazarene, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. Many were sternly telling him to be quiet, but he kept crying out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, Call him here. So they called the blind man, saying to him, Take courage, stand up. He is calling for you. Throwing aside his cloak, he jumped up and came to Jesus. And answering him, Jesus said, What do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabboni, I want to regain my sight. And Jesus said to him, Go, your faith has made you well. Immediately he regained his sight and began following him on the road. The title of our message today is, Was Blind, But Now I See, a lyric, of course, taking right out of Amazing Grace. And the outline in your bulletin directs us to four gospel-affirming truths so that we see that faith in Christ overcomes spiritual blindness and puts us on the path of discipleship. The first truth comes in our first verse, and it's this, the Lord understands our desperate condition. 
Verse 46 lets us know a few simple facts about Bartimaeus. He was blind and he was a beggar, but let's look a little bit deeper into the context. Jesus and the disciples were leaving Jericho. Jericho is five miles west of the Jordan, six miles north of the Dead Sea. For those who have been to the Holy Lands, perhaps you got a chance to visit. 21 miles by road northeast of Jerusalem. All of Israel was on their way to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. And the road through Jericho was one of the main routes to the temple. Mark 11, which is our very next passage, our very next chapter that we'll study, marks the triumphal entry. And we know that Jesus was going to Jerusalem for the, because of the time of the Passover. We know it was around that time. With so many people on the road, this proved to be a strategic place for Bartimaeus to attract the attention of the Passover pilgrims. Matthew and Luke's account share that it was two men begging, and some commentators believe that it was Bartimaeus along with his father, who also may have been blind. And this is why Mark describes him in verse 46 as the son of Timaeus. Physical blindness was very common in Israel due to sanitary conditions, disease, and illnesses that could not be treated. This resulted in many people being born blind. And we don't know for certain whether Bartimaeus previously had the ability to see, and I'm going to share more about this later. But, we, but, but what we do know is this. He was physically di- disabled, and he was physically dependent upon the help of others because he could not work. And this was the desperate condition that he was facing. There, there was no social or governmental assistance during this time. There were no welfare programs to help him survive. And it's at this point where you may feel compassion for Bartimaeus, which is good. Because Bartimaeus is really a living example of every person who is not in a saving relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Like poor Bartimaeus, every lost sinner is spiritually blind. 2 Corinthians 4.4 affirms that the God of this world, a direct reference to Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelieving. Yes, Bartimaeus was in, it was in a sad condition, but the lost sinner is in far worse condition. The lost sinner is spiritually blind, so he cannot see God. He is deaf, so he cannot hear God. He is crippled by sin, so he cannot walk with God. He has unclean hands, so he cannot work for God. He has a defiled mind, so he cannot think rightly about God. He has unclean lips, so he cannot worship God. He has a wicked and depraved heart, so he cannot live for God. Worst of all, the lost sinner is spiritually dead, according to Ephesians 2, so there's nothing that he can do to help his desperate condition. He cannot seek God. He can't know God, desire God, love God, or come to God on his own. And yet we can be encouraged because just like Bartimaeus, the Lord understands our desperate condition. Well, there's a second gospel-affirming truth in our passage in verses 47 and 48. The Lord hears us when we cry out to him. Was Bartimaeus aware of his desperate condition? From your perspective? What do you think? I think so. And when someone is blind or suffers from a disability, it heightens the awareness of their other senses. 
Surely Bartimaeus had heard about Jesus of Nazareth. And though he had never seen him or the miracles that he performed due to the lack of sight, surely he had heard the discussions about him. We're looking at close to three years at this point in time of Christ's earthly ministry. Jesus of Nazareth, the one who some were claiming to be the Messiah, the one who, according to the prophet Isaiah, would cause the eyes of the blind to be opened and the ears of the deaf to be unstopped. The lame will leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute will shout for joy. Bartimaeus could hear the increasing number of people that were approaching with the crowd that was following Jesus. The record doesn't say, but it's probably more than probable that Bartimaeus probably inquired about who it was that, that was coming because he could hear the massive crowd. So how would Bartimaeus respond? Look at verse 47. And when he heard that it was Jesus the Nazarene, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. And here we see it's a perceptive cry. What Bartimaeus lacks in eyesight, he makes up for in insight. Hearing of Jesus, he cries out, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. Ever since the promise given in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 11-14, through 14, that God would raise up an offspring of David and establish the throne of His kingdom forever, pious Israelites awaited a Davidic descendant as Messiah. James Edwards writes, Bartimaeus's determined hailing of Jesus as son of David carries explicit messianic overtones and shows that he looks to him as the Messiah who can bring healing and wholeness. End quote. Though he could not see, his heart was responding in faith. Someone once bluntly asked blind and deaf Helen Keller, isn't it terrible to be blind? To which she responded, better to be blind and see with your heart than to have two good eyes and see nothing. How true. How true. And so it was with blind Bartimaeus. Perhaps his physical blindness even served as an advantage Bartimaeus had lots of time to think about all these things that he heard without the physical distractions around the world. Right? The, the, the visual distractions that would, would, would deter people who could see. And God was at work in his heart. And he thought about the Christ. And he came to an exalted biblical view of Jesus realizing his own darkness and need and who Jesus was which encouraged him to have faith. J.C. Ryle had this to say, Bartimaeus was blind in body, but not in soul. The eyes of his understanding were open. He saw things which Annas and Caiaphas and hosts of formerly educated teachers of the law and Pharisees never saw at all. He saw that Jesus of Nazareth, as our Lord was contemptuously called, Jesus who had lived for 30 years in an obscure Galilean village, this very Jesus was the Son of David, the Messiah of whom prophets had prophesied long ago. He had witnessed none of our Lord's mighty miracles. He had not had the opportunity of seeing dead people raised with a word and lepers healed by a touch. 
Of all these privileges, his blindness totally deprived him. But he had heard the report of our Lord's mighty works, and hearing had believed. And he was satisfied from mere hearsay that he of whom such wonderful things were reported must be the promised Savior and must be able to heal him. And so when our Lord drew near, he cried, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. Verse 47 reveals that it was a perceptive cry. Verse 48 discloses that it was a persistent cry. Look at verse 48. Many were sternly telling him to be quiet, but he kept crying out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. What an example of perseverance. Bartimaeus was not going to be denied. He wasn't. He did not care about the rebukes that he received from the uncompassionate. He did not mind the ridicule that his persistence brought upon himself. He shouted out all the more, and his shouting would obtain his heart's desire when he would receive his sight. Ryle adds this insight. Let all who wish to be saved take good note of this conduct of Bartimaeus and walk diligently in his steps. Like him, we must not care about what others think and say of us when when we seek the healing of our souls. There will never be any lack of people telling us that it's too soon or too late or that we're going too fast or too far. That we need not to pray so much or read our Bible so much or to be so anxious about salvation. We must pay no attention to such people. Like Bartimaeus, we must cry out all the more, Jesus, have mercy on me. End quote. I do believe that there's also a lesson for us here on prayer under this second truth. The Lord hears us when we cry out to Him. Not just when we cry out for salvation, but when we cry out to Him in our sanctification. When we cry out to Him in the growing pains, in the growing process. When life gets hard. The questions we need to ask ourselves when we do face trials, when they do come our way, are we just crying? Or are we crying out to Him? There's a vast difference between those two. Crying can leave us in a a place of of loathing, self-pity, and discouragement. Crying out to Him leads us to a place of faith and assurance and direction as He guides and disciples us through the storms of life. Have you cried out to the Lord for your salvation? Or is something getting in your way? Will today be the day when, like Bartimaeus, you won't care about what others think and truly cry out to the Lord in faith to have mercy upon you? That you would be shattered. That you would be absolutely devastated over your sinfulness, over your darkness. That you'd be overwhelmed by His holiness. 
That you would repent of your unbelief and sin and trust completely in Christ. No, dear friend, make sure that you're not wearing a mask of a Christian, but really living in this world. Make sure that your heart knows Him. Make sure it is established through a personal relationship with Him. And if you already know the Lord, are you crying out to Him and sharing the struggles of your life with Him? How are you and I depending upon the Lord for strength? Are we trying to handle life in our own strength? Think about that. That's the temptation every week. That's the temptation when I sit down to even write a sermon. And then, oh, how quickly the Lord reminds me, son, you can't do it on your own. You cannot do it on your own. Immediately ask for prayer. You usually see me posting a prayer book, right? A prayer request right about that time on Facebook for those that I'm friends with on Facebook. How is your prayer life and mine centered around his omnipotence? How is it impacted by his discipleship in your life? Take time this week to fight for your prayer time. Like Bartimaeus, fight for your right to cry out to the Lord. And this world will try to prevent us, will it not? It will. And we must fight to cry out to the Lord. What a blessing to see the perceptive and persistent cries from Bartimaeus today and to take comfort in the fact that the Lord hears us when we cry out to Him, which leads us to our third truth, excuse me, in our our outline. Our next truth also brings great comfort to the soul. The Lord understands our desperate condition The Lord hears us when we cry out to Him. Thirdly, the Lord calls us to come to Him with our need. Question for you. Why do you think that the disciples were willing to pass Bartimaeus by when they knew that Jesus could heal him? Why do you think the crowd who had saw Jesus perform countless miracles were were willing to also pass him by, when they also knew that Jesus could heal him. In fact, our last verse informed us that many were even going a step further than just ignoring him, but they even told him to stop addressing, think about this, stop addressing Jesus as the Messiah and asking him for mercy. Talk about counterproductive. Some have speculated that they lacked compassion. Others, that they were annoyed by his shouting. These are reasonable proposals. But I believe there's something bigger happening here that we should see. Where is Jesus headed toward? We learned earlier in the study in this chapter, he's headed towards Jerusalem. And you recall from our earlier study in verse 32 that Jesus was fixed. He had his game face on. He was purposed as he, he set now in the direction of the city. And those who were following him were both amazed and fearful. They knew that Jesus was going to encounter collective opposition of the scribes and Pharisees and the largest opposing crowd that he had ever faced. In their eyes, guess what? This was going to be the title fight of the century. 
This was bigger than Mayweather and Pacquiao for my, my uh, boxing fans, all right? This is, this is beyond the, the Thrilla in Manila, okay? And I firmly believe this, that if pay-per-view was available even at that time, that this would be the all-time record that ever got set as it related because they knew something big was going to happen. They knew that this was going to be a monumental moment and the culminating reason for which Jesus came to earth. And I don't want to steal my thunder from the triumphal entry, but this, is, this, this was huge, right? This was big. Nothing could be more important. And this is why I believe the disciples in the crowd disregarded Bartimaeus. They were too busy thinking about what was going to happen next, and I believe they didn't want anything impeding Jesus from getting to Jerusalem so that they could see what happened. But what did Jesus do? Look at verse 49. Jesus stopped. And said, call him here. So they called the blind man, saying to him, take courage, stand up, he is calling for you. Jesus stopped. James Edwards writes, quote, on those words hangs the fate of Bartimaeus. The original Greek reads, and Jesus stood still. How remarkable that the Son of Man allows the cries of a poor and powerless person to stop him in his tracks. End quote. Not only does Jesus stop, but he takes the time to serve him and calls Bartimaeus to himself. And notice Bartimaeus' response in verse 50. Throwing aside his cloak, he jumped up and came to Jesus. Only Mark's account provides these vivid details. Both of Bartimaeus' actions reflect faith and eagerness. The garment referred to was a cloak. Casting it away probably means that he threw it off to avoid being entangled in it as he ran towards Jesus. And most men during this time wore cloaks. And so you've heard the expression of girding your loins, right? As they would gird and wrap around the cloak, around their legs or into their loins so that they could actually run, which was actually considered a... um, disgraceful thing to do so that's even more evidence of him just not even caring as he cried out what he looked like he didn't care he just needed to get to jesus it could also mean that his cloak was spread out before him on the ground to receive receive alms of passing pilgrims and that he thrust it aside in his eagerness to get to Jesus. Either way, it was an unusual act for a blind man who ordinarily would have been careful to keep his garment within reach. The word word translated jumped up or sprang up is a graphic verb found only here in the New Testament, and it shows us his spirited response. He didn't care about his cloak. He didn't care about all the money, and there could have been a lot just with the crowds that were going and the alms that were giving. He got up. He threw it all to the side. What mattered most to him was responding to the call of Jesus. The Lord calls us to come to Him with our need. 
Notice the exchange that takes place in verse 51. In answering him, Jesus said, What do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabboni, I want to regain my sight. Notice what he didn't say. He didn't say, Grant that I'm, I alone may sit by your right side in glory. When you're sitting in glory. The last time that Jesus asked this question, what do you want me to do for you, was with James and John. Right? We remember that. Verse 36, for those who want to look up and find it right away. We know how that ended, right? What do you want me to do for you? Here we have this question again. And I shared last time that this question really does put all of life into perspective if you think about it. It exposes the heart to the core. Our answers to this question alone reveal our motives and whether we're seeking the Lord's glory or our own. I spent some time thinking about that question and how I would answer it. What do you want me to do for you, John? Lord, I want you to save our children. Lord, I want you to save my unsaved family and friends. Lord, I, I want you to preserve me. I want you to help me to persevere to the end. I don't want to bring shame to your name. I never want to disqualify myself from the ministry. I want to follow you faithfully. I want to fulfill your commission to, to make disciples. That's what I want. And I want the same for you and your families. And everything else in this world, just think about it for a moment, everything else in this world is going to burn. It's going to burn. The nice house is going to burn. The nicest car that you'll ever own is going to burn. Everything, positions at work, status, beach homes, vacation houses, all of it is going to burn. That could be another homework assignment. Spend some time reflecting on that question. Think about it, right? And it doesn't mean that there can't be things that you put down as it relates that, that are important to this life that are going to have a spiritual impact. That's not an exhaustive list by any means. But it does help us see spiritually with greater clarity. Bartimaeus answered simply and directly, Rabboni, I want to regain my sight. He addresses the Lord as Rabboni, which is the same address that Mary used in John chapter 20 and verse 16 after she saw the resurrected Christ. That was the same title that she used, which means my Lord, my Master. In Jewish literature, Rabbuani is how it would be pronounced. Rabbuani 
is seldom used with reference to humanity and hardly ever as a form of address. It is frequently used as an address to God in prayer. So here it suggests Bartimaeus' and Mark's estimation of who Jesus truly is. I believe Bartimaeus wanted to see, but at this point in time, from what he's seen and known and what he's overheard and the way that his heart is responding on faith, in, in faith, I believe in all my heart that he wanted to see who he was speaking to. Who is the Messiah? Who is the one we've long awaited to see? And this leads us to our fourth and final truth. The Lord gives us sight and discipleship. Let's look at our final verse together. And Jesus said to him, Go, your faith has made you well. And immediately he regained his sight and began following him on the road. The literal translation goes something like this. Go, your faith has saved you. Sozo in the Greek. Salvation saved you. His faith centered on Christ who had the ability to heal him was the subjective means of making him permanently whole, bringing him into the state of being saved. Commentators agree that saved here apparently had a double meaning, referring to physical as well as spiritual salvation. One even remarked by saying, quote, what was happening in the man's body was really, we may presume, but the outward picture of what had happened in his soul. End quote. And this is radical, right? This is radical. It says he regained his sight, or some translations use recovered. But in, in the Greek, it's really saying he received sight or gained sight. If we use regained or recovered, it gives an indication that he might have had sight before, right? Doesn't it? Which, as I mentioned earlier, probably wasn't the case. He was probably born blind, just like the man was in John chapter 9. And if you think about it, that would offer greater authenticity to the miracle versus a guy who had seen before, right? Because we saw the impact that it has in John chapter 9. You know, the guy had never seen. If somebody saw before, then they could attribute, well, his disease wore off or his illness got better and then he could see again rather than to the actual miracle itself. What I want to draw your attention to is what happened immediately after he was saved. The end of verse 52 says that he began following him on the road. This is profound. Jesus transformed Bartimaeus from a beggar beside the road to a disciple on the road. Edwards writes, quote, Faith that does not lead to discipleship is not saving faith. Whoever asks of Jesus must be willing to follow Jesus even on the uphill road to the cross. End quote. Scholars believe the reason why Mark includes Bartimaeus' name in his account was that he became a bold leader in the Jerusalem church. He followed Jesus. He witnessed the triumphal entry on Palm Sunday. He witnessed the horror of the crucifixion and the joy of the resurrection. 
Bartimaeus is often referred to by theologians as the model disciple. And what a powerful truth for us to consider. Christ saves us to put us on the path of discipleship. That's why he saves us. He's going to glorify himself and he is going to put us on the path of discipleship. He gave you and I spiritual eyes so that we could be disciples and make disciples for his glory. And what does making disciples look like practically? It's been a while since I've said it, but we understand what a disciple is, a follower and a learner of Christ. And the goal is to become a disciple maker. That's what God has for us. And that involves becoming a leader and teacher of others. The adult discipleship ministry of our church involves care groups which are intended to cultivate a discipleship atmosphere. And we do believe that it's important and it's good. We haven't mentioned these in a while, but I'll go ahead and mention them again. That at the heart of care group, what are we trying to cultivate? We want, to, we want to tap into the heart of care group, into the heart of discipleship. We use an acronym, TAP, T-A-P-P. Transparency, accountability, prayer, and progress. And those, uh, th- th- those are critical, absolutely vital to discipleship and cultivating the atmosphere. There's transparency before the Word of God. It helps us to continue to grow in our understanding of who He is after we got saved. How do we see a bigger God? We're transparent before His Word and He reveals to us through His Word the magnitude of who He is. It also reveals the magnitude of who we aren't apart from Christ as we continue to learn about ourselves. So we want to be committed to our study of the Scriptures. If you're visiting our church today, uh, we're currently going through Romans, and that's why you saw Romans 8 mentioned even during the worship set. And we covered the first five chapters last year. We're hopefully going to get through, uh, we'll see if we get through five. Huey, what do you think? Uh, We'll see what happens. He's he's thumbs up. We're going to try, right? But we want to have transparency before the Word of God. The A stands for accountability. We want to have the Spirit-filled life. We want to be accountable to one another in the fear of Christ. We, we want people to ask us the difficult questions and, and, and help us to be faithful in our walks that we would walk in a manner worthy of the gospel in our lives. So we have accountability. This leads us oftentimes to the confession of sin one to another which is closely integrated to the, 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 the next or the first P, prayer, right? Confessing our sins and praying for one another, James 5.16. Right? And we have the opportunity to, to pray and, and have that accountability that go hand in hand. And then the last P, progress. Now we would be able to have other brothers and sisters in our lives and care group leaders and shepherds that, that, that care about the condition of our soul and that actually want to look into our lives and make sure that we're making progress in all of those areas, in transparency, in accountability, in prayer. How accountability is right in the middle of those two, word and prayer. 
This is, this is care group. This is the ministry. And let, let me say, and everybody's going to give an amen right after this. Okay, you ready? I'm giving you your cue. It's easier said than done. Amen? Oh, yes, indeed. Easier said than done. We realize that it comes at a great cost. We realize that in, in the rat race and the difficulty and finding time to get in the Word, finding time to pray, finding time to reach out to a brother and sister who's struggling, who needs accountability, or for us to take our struggles to them. It takes time. It takes death to self. Another reason why Jesus just even talked about the goal of servant, the importance and the paradox of servanthood right before this passage. This is actually a closing section in the Gospel of Mark as we entered into Mark 11. And, and Jesus, going back to Mark 8, there was this, these lessons on discipleship that he was trying to teach. We need to see them. And let us be encouraged by the account of Bartimaeus and that the Lord gives us sight and discipleship. Amen, church? He gives us sight and discipleship. Well, during my study, I came across a story that Pastor R. Kent Hughes shares to put Bartimaeus' experience into perspective. And it's an extended quote, but I think it serves as a fitting conclusion. On February 17, 1982, the Chicago Sun-Times carried a story originally printed in the Los Angeles Times about Anna Mae Penica, a 62-year-old woman who had been blind from birth. At age 47, she married a man she met in Braille class. All my singles right there, okay? The Lord has somebody for everyone, okay? 47, met her mate in Braille class. For the first 15 years of their marriage, he did the seeing for both of them until he completely lost his vision to retinitis pigmentosa. Mrs. Penica had never seen the green of spring or the blue of summer sky, yet because she had grown up in a loving, supportive family, she never felt resentful about her handicap and always exuded a remarkably cheerful spirit. Then in October 1981, Dr. Thomas Pettit of the Jules Stein Eye Institute of the University of California at Los Angeles performed surgery to remove the rare congenital cataracts from the eyes of Mrs. Penica left, Mrs. Penica's left eye. She saw for the first time ever. The newspaper account does not record her initial response, but it does tell us that she found that everything was so much bigger and brighter than she ever imagined. While she immediately recognized her husband and others she had known well, other acquaintances were taller or shorter, heavier or skinnier than she had pictured them. Since that day, Mrs. Penica has hardly been able to wait to wake up in the morning, splash her eyes with water, and put on her glasses and enjoy the changing morning light. Her vision is almost 20-30, good enough to pass a driver's test. Think how wonderful it must have been for Anna Mae Penica when she looked up for the first time at faces she had only felt or when she saw the kaleidoscope of a Pacific sunset or a tree waving its branches or a bird in flight. The gift of physical sight is wonderful and the miracle of seeing for the first time can hardly be described. Now imagine how it was for Bartimaeus. Blind at the beginning of Christ's sentence, he was seeing at the end of it. 
no surgery, no bandages, no adjustment. Boom. Sight. He saw human beings for the first time. He saw the gawking crowd. He saw the city of roses hung with palm trees and the hills of Moab off in the distance. But the thing he saw first was the face of Jesus. Then he closes with this. And for you and me too, that will be the greatest of all sights. When we awake from the dream men call life, when we put off the image of the earth and break the bonds of time and mortality, when the scales of time have fallen from our eyes and the garment of corruption has been put off, and when this mortality has put on mortality, immortality, this corruption has put on, put on incorruption, and we awaken in the everlasting morning, that will be the sight that will stir us and hold us. End quote. Be encouraged, dear friend. Be encouraged. And do not take the spiritual sight that the Lord has given you for granted. Stay faithfully on the path of discipleship. And may our hearts continue to rejoice in the grace of the Gospel. Amen? Amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found. Was blind, but now I see. Pray with me. Father, we bow our heads as we prepare our hearts to receive communion, thanking you for just even this appropriate passage to have us meditate on on these gospel-affirming truths and what you did and the account that you provided in the, the life of Bartimaeus. Thank you for recognizing our desperate condition the same way that you recognized his. Thank you for hearing us when we cried out to you in our darkness and had no hope. Thank you for calling us to yourself. And we know that it is your kindness that leads us to repentance. It is you that have made it possible for us to have faith. And we pray, Father, that now that you've given us spiritual eyes to see that you would continue to increase our faith. Help us to be mindful of the stewardship of time that you've given us and consider all the things that are taking place in our lives that are pulling us away from discipleship and discipleship relationships. Help us, Lord, to cut those things out of our life. To focus on that which truly matters most. That which carries weightiness and will impact your glory. Lord, we are thankful that you have blessed us to be at a disciple-making church. I pray specifically for our care group ministry that you would continue to allow us to cultivate transparency, accountability, deep prayer, and great progress in all of the groups. Maybe it's possible many of us have had the experience where we, we don't feel like we're making progress. May we be diligent, even 
even today and this coming week to consider how it is that we can seek you and make greater progress. That our lives would be committed to following you and fulfilling the great commission that you've laid on the soul of every single one that believes in Christ. We thank you, Father, for this time. We ask that you'll bless our celebration of communion as we turn to it now. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.